Hello and welcome to CIA Files, True Stories of U.S. Intelligence. I'm your host, Topher M. Ford, and with me is uh, Brandon Gibbons. Brandon, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing pretty, pretty, pretty well uh, for Halloween. Um, well, I've had a beard, so I shaved um, half of my head and half of my face. So I was two-faced for Halloween. And I had like a little coffee cup. Yeah. Yeah. One had a smiley face and the other had like the devil. And so I walked around with one in one hand, one in the other. Bearded me had the smiling face. Yes. I forgot about Halloween and I I always get excited about Halloween because I would love to celebrate it. But when the actual day comes, I usually have so much stuff going on that I just forget. And I felt terrible. We had one child come up to the door uh, for candy and I didn't have any candy, <laughs> so I had. To... <laughs> did you get? Did you get tricked? No, they just looked disappointed. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you broke the kid's heart. I know. Well, I'm assuming that they had they got candy from other houses that weren't, uh, you know, n- negligent in their holiday duties. Yeah, so this episode, um, Frank Wisner of the CIA, he is, uh, as I've been learning about the CIA, he's been one of the characters that I found really interesting. Um, And I think that it's like, just like Kim Philby was supposedly, uh, Frank Wisner was a true believer, you know. We have uh, we have different people that we come across in these stories who are not true believers. You know, they're in it for money or power. Uh, like I would argue that Alan Dulles was not a true believer; that he was just in it for the fun and you know the prestige. Um, there are others, you know. It, Different people are different things, I suppose. But uh, Kim Philby was a true believer. Of course, what he truly believed in was (laughs) communism. Um, And, um, but true believer nonetheless. And Frank Wisner was a true believer in the opposite. Um, Not so much uh, capitalism as it is just... um, you know, he saw a lot of uh, horrors committed by the Soviet armies, and it really traumatized him, I think, and really motivated him. So he started off as, um, I would say, a good guy, but that didn't last too long. <laughs> it didn't last too long. Well, what did they say about the road to hell? It's paved yeah. with, with what? Good intentions, yeah. And uh, that's exactly what what Frank Wisner uh, contributed to. And, you know, and we'll, I think that we'll see with this first episode where we get into Frank Wisner and his origin story, you know, he seems like a very sympathetic character, very driven. He came from privilege, you know, 
he grew up with uh, wealth and connections and all of those things. But he still decided to dedicate his life to public service and to doing what he thought was right. Um, of course, once we get past the first episode uh, on down the road and get more into Frank Wisner's life, we'll see that he was the... He tested out that notion of the ends justifying the means um, because he went through a ton of means, <laughs> a ton of, <laughs> and he tried everything. And wow. once we it's get very, into very, what he, what's that? It sounds very um, Nietzschean. You know, when you stare into the abyss, the abyss stares back. Yeah. He definitely looked into some dark places and they, and the, those dark places uh, touched him, you know, definitely left a mark on him. Um, but yeah, that's later down the road for now. We're just going to learn about the, uh, origin story of Frank Gardner wizard Wis Frank, <laughs> Frank Gardner Wisner. So, uh, here is part one. We are not professing to tell you the complete story of these activities. We are professing to tell you the complete story that we know these records that we've uncovered don't tell the story. This is CIA files. They tell pieces of it. True stories of U.S. intelligence. caught up with the war, and I do not intend to get behind it again. Frank Wisner Were it not for a handful of loud, persistent voices shouting fire about Stalin's intentions toward Western values, the Cold War may well have never occurred, or may at least have been less brutal, less deadly. And maybe the United States wouldn't have compromised its stated moral codes so egregiously in the decades following the end of the Second World War. A liberal Southern lawyer was one of those few loud voices. Frank Wisner, a man socially ahead of his time, did what he thought was necessary to stop what he considered a spreading scourge of tyranny and violence. And in doing so, he enabled innumerable crimes against humanity. Frank Wisner also helped destroy the people's trust in the U.S. government and the news media once the public learned of how he influenced mass media to spread propaganda. And his role in grand conspiracies, such as Operation Mockingbird and Project MKUltra, today serve as an inspiration for dangerously delusional thinking. And ultimately, Frank Wisner destroyed himself. Frank Gardner Wisner was born in Laurel, Mississippi in 1909. From an early age, Frank was overly energetic, driven, and ambitious. One of his school teachers said of him, 
Childhood acquaintances of Frank Gardner Wisner rarely recalled seeing him walk. He seemed to run everywhere. Even as a boy, he fairly crackled with a kind of impatient energy. In a photograph taken of him around the age of eight or nine, in which he is posing with two other boys, he appears to be practically bursting out of his Sunday suit, as if clothes are just another thing getting in his way and slowing him down. Wisner's father, Frank George Wisner, came to Mississippi in the 1880s with a group of developers from Iowa. They were drawn to undeveloped land rich with yellow pine. Together, they constructed a mill and began cutting down trees to turn into lumber. The end of Reconstruction was followed by Jim Crow. Mississippi in the 1880s was a very segregated place. It was a period, also called the Nadir, or rock bottom of um, race relations. Jones County, where Laurel is located, never developed much of a slavery-based plantation economy because the land wasn't very suitable for cash crops. The same land that grows pine trees doesn't grow cotton or tobacco very well. It remained largely full of pine trees and small farmers who had no interest in paying taxes to support the Confederacy, so they themselves seceded from it. Now, that doesn't mean that there wasn't racism there. Areas of the South with high numbers per capita of Union sympathizers, you know, such as the Ozarks, have turned into some of the strongest areas per capita of Klan support. Now, there are a couple of reasons for the logging boom. The Northeast had been largely logged out, or at least it was cheaper to log elsewhere. The nation was growing and railroads were expanding. Both required lumber. The lumber use was used for plywood, railroad ties, and general construction. Yellow pine forests were all over the Southeast. New technologies also made it easier to cut and remove the trees from the forest. The logging ended up leaving behind vast yellow pine stumpscapes. Fun fact, in 1929, Harry Cole of Mississippi invented the cleaner pine saw, which comes from pine oil. He found a way to make those worthless tree stumps a source of money. The Wisner family was well-to-do and young Frank grew up with all the privilege granted to wealthy white landowners. However, the Wisner family didn't quite fit in with the culture that surrounded them. While the family did employ a staff of black servants, including a black nanny who helped raise young Frank, their general attitude toward differences in race did not match the standard southern attitude of white superiority. At its heart, Laurel was a boomtown. As such, it had far more in common with, say, the mining settlements of Montana or the oil fields of California than with its Mississippi counterparts. In this most rigidly segregated state of the Deep South, blacks and whites worked alongside each other in Laurel's Eastman Gardner lumber mill, and there was a degree of racial intermingling virtually unheard of elsewhere in Mississippi. In the black sections of town, the Iowans funded parks and streetlights, and in 1926, one of the first high schools for black children in the state, a development regarded as shocking, even subversive, by many Mississippi whites at the time. Mississippi was run on the state level by the Bourbon Democrats. 
the Bourbon Democrats would be something like modern-day libertarians or maybe Tea Party patriots. Um, they believed in states' rights, local control, and low regulation. They wanted the civil service to be as small as possible. They also wanted to stick to the gold standard. Uh, they were against any inflationary policy. To their credit, they worked to get rid of corrupt city bosses. <laughs> Not so much to their credit. On the state level, they worked to disenfranchise African Americans and many poor white Americans. Mississippi's economy relied on a credit lien system. Farmers who didn't already have land got supplies on credit. Some that even did have land. They got but not enough money to front you know, the cost of the supplies they needed. They got it on credit. And this, this often included you know, even just food and basic staples. The local store owner, or the merchants that controlled that, they maintained a monopoly on that service, and they formed these sort of um, informal cartels. Farmers from X had to go to Y merchant. Farmers from A had to go to B merchant. In this way, I mean, without competition, the merchants could keep prices high and interest rates on their credit high. In the end, farmers were just working to pay debts. It's like credit card debt before credit cards, and bankruptcy often wasn't a viable option. A group called the Farmers Alliance tried to organize a system of government loans to free farmers from the system, but it never took off in Mississippi. The Bourbon Democrats feared it might, though, or and they worked to restrict voting rights of the farmers, especially the African-American ones. The economic system relied on inequality, and society was segregated. Wisner's egalitarian attitudes were a contrary viewpoint likely to be met with suspicion, if not by the common worker, then by the elite. Frank became somewhat detached from his home in the South early on in life. He left for boarding school after graduating high school at 16. Then he toured through Europe before enrolling at the University of Virginia. For his part, Frank Wisner never truly regarded himself as a Southerner, except, his middle son Ellis recalled, on those occasions when outsiders denigrated the region. That's when he got his back up, Ellis Wisner recalled. If people made fun of it, that's when he became a Southerner. While earning his bachelor's, Wisner became a standout on the university track team. He was even invited to try out for the U.S. Olympic track team, but his father wouldn't have it. And that's where you see the conservativeness of the family come in, said Graham Wisner, the youngest of Wisner's three sons. My dad was, I don't know, maybe the second or third fastest runner in the country, but his father said no. A gentleman does not do athletics when he should be going to law school and starting a career. A gentleman is serious. Wisner graduated from the University of Virginia's law school near the top of his class in 1934. He was immediately offered a job at the prestigious law firm Carter Ledyard. Wisner and his girlfriend, Mary Polly Ellis Knowles, 
married and moved into a luxurious apartment on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. He worked as a successful Wall Street lawyer for the next five years until he startled his colleagues by announcing that he was leaving his career for the military. A follower of Global News, Wisner had been watching Europe move closer and closer to war, and contrary to popular opinion at the time, he felt that the United States should assist the Allied powers. Even further, he felt that U.S. involvement was inevitable. He joined the Navy in early 1941 with the commission of Lieutenant Junior Grade and was assigned to the Office of Naval Intelligence. On December 12th of that year, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, forcing the United States into the war. Working in naval intelligence at the time, Wisner took this unforeseen attack especially hard. It also settled the debate over whether or not the U.S. should enter the war. While U.S. soldiers began moving to the various battlefields across the globe, Wisner, because of his education and experience as a lawyer, spent most of his time behind a desk but he still held the same frenetic energy and ambition of his childhood, and he longed to get into the field. Instead, he spent the next two years in the New York Naval Cable and Radio Censorship Office editing letters and documents. However, his experience at Carter Ledyard came in handy when another former corporate lawyer was given a special task by President Franklin Roosevelt. His name was Wild Bill Donovan, and his task was to build the president a new intelligence service dubbed the Office of Strategic Services. Donovan did well for himself during the Depression as a corporate attorney handling mergers and acquisitions. He ran in, in very elite circles, and he had celebrities as clients as well. He began visiting Europe as a businessman, he even met with Mussolini and got permission to visit the front lines in Ethiopia. Remember, in war, raw materials are important, and being a business person gives you the perfect cover to find out who is buying what raw materials. Unusually large orders of metal may indicate rearmament, for example. Well, he was well-known and, and well-liked in the upper social circles. When Roosevelt sent him to investigate Britain's ability to fend off a German invasion, he hit it off famously with Churchill and William Stevenson. You know, intrepid. We did an episode on him. These two also got along very well with Roosevelt, and they convinced Roosevelt to have William Stevenson help William Donovan create an intelligence agency. So we get Big Bill and Little Bill setting up the Office of Strategic Services, OSS. These two, working together, use their connections to build a network with actors as well as business and social elites. The OSS office was placed directly above the British Intelligence Office in New York. The OSS office was so full of socialites, people joked OSS stood for Oh So Social. Come on, what super rich person wouldn't want to be part of a spy ring? Even Coco Chanel got in on it. Well, for, for the Nazis, though. But still, spy work can be irresistible for the bored, wealthy. 
the OSS stationed Wisner in Cairo, Egypt. Despite the new exotic location, Wisner found himself still frustrated after being assigned to collate files in yet another office. He made his wish to work in the field known to his higher-ups, who were impressed by his work ethic and enthusiasm. And soon, Wisner would get his chance to live up to his ambitions. After the OSS discovered an important intelligence program in Istanbul was in total shambles. It was called Operation Dogwood, and it was run by a man named Lanning Packy McFarland. Istanbul was in Turkey, which was neutral during the war. It was uh, this crossroads between the Balkans and the French and British colonies in the Levant and Mesopotamia, both areas which saw action during World War II. It was the perfect location to move money in ways that were hard to trace, you know, set up shell companies and all that sort of thing. Spy networks from both sides were operating there. Agent Packy McFarlane was working out of Istanbul, with his cover being a banker working with Lynn Lease. He ran Operation Dogwood, which was a web of informants, resistance, and partisans reaching through the Balkans well behind enemy lines. The idea was for it to be a way to get covert information in and out, deep behind enemy lines, undetected. The problem was it was deeply infiltrated by Axis agents. Packy was inept at counterintelligence and vetting agents. Packy's office's discipline was so bad, letters left his office with Office of Strategic Services on the addressing envelopes. The OSS sent Wisner to Istanbul to replace McFarland and to repair the spy rings that McFarland had squandered. Unlike McFarland, Wisner took his role and his duties, as well as standard operating procedures, seriously. Soon, though, he'd be given a more important posting after Romania turned on their German allies, switching sides mid-war. There are three major factors to consider. One is, why did Romania join the Axis? Two, why might they have feared the Soviets so much? And three, what were the general political feelings of the populace? So I'll start with the first one, and it's going to take a minute. Uh, like, why did they join the Axis? Um, that's, that story goes back a bit, too. I think we're, I'm just going to have to say we'll get there when we get there. But I'll start with um, Romania being on the winning side of World War I. And they ended up with Bessarabia, modern-day Moldova, which had been part of Russia. They ended up with Transylvania, which had been part of Hungary, and Bukovina, which had been part of the collapsed Austro-Hungarian Empire. Their government had alliances with Poland and France. When Poland was invaded, France didn't immediately invade Germany. Uh, they had what some called the Phony War or the Sitzkrieg. Um, Poland and Romania decided, though, that it would be best if Romania remained neutral as they shared a border in the Far East. 
Supplies could be sent via Romanian ports and railways, and if necessary, the Polish army could be evacuated through Romania. And that's essentially what happened. Um, Not the entire army, of course, but a large contingent. After the Soviets invaded Poland in the fall of 39, the Polish military knew that it was it was a lost cause, and many of those that could fled through Romania and set sail to France. They also took a lot of the Polish treasury with them. Other, uh, I think about half of the treasury was deposited in Romanian banks. Well, in late June 1940, the Soviets demanded the return of Bessarabia. The Romanians obviously feared that if they said no, then the Soviets would invade from the east, and a few days later, Germany or Hungary would invade from the north, much as Poland had been gobbled up. So they acquiesced. Romanians seemed to have been pressured into either joining the fascists or buddying up with the Soviet Union. The Romanian monarchy was of German descent, and overall they had had pretty good relations. They never really got along with the Russians as they disagreed over Bessarabia for centuries. Romania wanted to be on the Allied side, but Romania felt that France hadn't kept its promises to Poland, and now that they were being uh, threatened by Russia, uh, so yeah, they... They needed to find a way to be protected, and England and France just weren't capable, and the United States was still in its isolationist phase. King Carroll repudiated Romania's treaty with France. He then sent a message to Hitler to possibly renew an old Romanian-German alliance. Hitler's precondition was that Romania needed to have good relations with Germany's Axis buddies, you know, the first ones to get on the bandwagon, Hungary and Bulgaria. So Hungary was able to make its claim on Transylvania, and Bulgaria made a claim on Dobruja. Now, through arbitration, Romania negotiated the return of the northern half of Transylvania. Now, this was signed late August 1940. And in September, they transferred southern Dobruja to Bulgaria. Now, elements of the Romanian government wanted the military to resist arbitration, but it was seen as impractical. This had the effect of putting Romania in good graces with the Axis powers, but it also made the government look weak. You know, like many of them just think... They did not want to give that land up. It was a major defeat in many ways. So King Carroll, he he was replaced by his son, Michael, who became a figurehead king for a fascist government led by Antonescu. You know, if you can't beat them, join them, huh? Well, Antonescu embraced fascism wholeheartedly, passed anti-Semitic laws, had political dissenters arrested and often killed, um... I think it was even by October, German soldiers started arriving and setting up bases and defenses in Romania, like hundreds of thousands eventually. Now, it should be noted that Antonescu was not universally popular, even among fascists. 
There was a coup against him, attempted more or less by his own party. Once the Germans invaded Soviet Union with Operation Barbarossa, things briefly looked up for Romania. They reacquired Bessarabia and uh, were promised more territory. But by August 44, the Soviets were knocking at the door. Anti-Antonescu politicians and military officers convinced King Michael to lead a coup. He did so successfully and by mid-September had managed to get an armistice signed with the Allies. After the armistice, the Romanian army fought alongside the Soviets. Still, there were over 100,000 Romanian prisoners of war in Soviet prisons. Why did the Romanians fear the Soviets so much? Well, the Soviet occupations of Bessarabia and um, Bukovina were not without bloodshed and strife. Between the Soviet occupation and Operation Barbarossa, the Soviets deported upwards of 300,000 Romanians from Bessarabia to Siberia. Tens of thousands were killed. There was also the Fontana Alba massacre in 41, in which a large number of Romanians and others in Bukovina tried to cross into Romania. The Soviet guards gave warning shots, but did open fire on the people, killing 24 to 200 people. In that year, under Soviet occupation, over 10,000 Bukovinians were deported to Siberia. What's clear is that if the Soviets occupy a place, you can't leave, and free thinking is very dangerous. There was also the Katyn massacre in Poland. A mass grave of Polish soldiers was found in German-occupied Soviet Union. It contained 22,000 Polish soldiers and intellectuals murdered by Soviet forces. The Germans made sure that the, that news made the rounds. So if the Soviets were willing to kill 22,000 Polish people pretty much arbitrarily, it logically followed that the same would be done to Romanians. Of course, Romanian communists wouldn't be afraid of those things. They could simply choose not to believe them, or call it fake news, or Nazi, or capitalist propaganda. And the third issue that I would think of is like, well, what were, their, what were the people's um, general feelings politically? Well, it was, it was pretty divided. The initial leadership leaned toward the Allied side, like they wanted to be on the Allied side. The fascists took power by force, and even the other fascists didn't like them. They never wholeheartedly took up fascism, just as they never wholeheartedly took up communism. So to sum it up, the Romanians signed up with the Axis because they didn't really have much of a choice. They had a history of dispute with Russia, and the Soviet army had a reputation for brutality. The people weren't really all that in favor of fascism to begin with, they started the war uh, wanting to be on the Allied side. Once they had the opportunity to actually join the Allies and be protected from both the Nazis and the Soviets, they jumped at it. Unfortunately for them, the Allied powers had already agreed to leave Romania 
within the sphere of influence of the Soviets. The Germans left in a rush, leaving behind a massive wealth of sensitive information. Within the Nazi files, the Americans found the locations of manufacturing sites, fighter plane depots, and other installations key to the German war effort, which the Allies subsequently bombed. They also found records of tens of thousands of Nazi Party members, among other pertinent intelligence. Because Romanians were so afraid of their impending Russian occupiers, many of the wealthier residents begged U.S. soldiers to board in their homes to prevent Soviet soldiers from looting all of their possessions. While in Bucharest, Wisner accepted such an invitation from a wealthy beer magnate named Dumitru Bragadiru. Wisner and his team set up shop in one of the wings of Bragadiru's sprawling mansion. The mood in Bucharest following the Nazis' retreat was one of relief and joy. For the first couple of months, the wealthy freely shared their best wines and liquors, and opulent feasts were served every night. While staying there, Wisner met the wife of his host, a young woman named Princess Tanda Karajia. The two of them were rumored to be having a tawdry affair under the roof of her husband's mansion. This illicit affair would come back to haunt Wisner later on when FBI head J. Edgar Hoover started looking for ways to compromise the CIA by attacking its members. Eventually, though, the celebratory mood eased and Wisner and his team relocated to more modest accommodations with fewer distractions. While Bill Donovan had sent Wisner to Romania with clear instructions to quietly observe the Soviets during their occupation, what Wisner saw did not improve his view of Stalin's communists. Wisner watched as Soviets went about pressuring conservative officials out of public office and enabling communist politicians to take their place. Scott Anderson described this overall tactic and its results in The Quiet Americans. It is the strategy of tearing away at an existing political framework from so many different and seemingly unrelated angles, the appointment of an unqualified but loyal functionary to a sub-ministry here, the annulment of a legal protection over there, that it leaves the opposition overwhelmed and flummoxed and unsure of where to make a stand. Wisner sent back word of his fears to Donovan, but was told to tone it down. The U.S. and Great Britain were more concerned with not upsetting their Russian allies at the time. While Germany was on the ropes, the Allies were still dealing with the Japanese and were hoping to gain Russia's assistance in the Pacific once Europe was secure. Yay! That was such a good episode! Yay! <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. Um, Brandon, what, what did you think? What, what did you think about Frank Wisner, at least, you know, at the onset? Uh, I mean, it's a pretty fascinating story. I mean, uh, I, I always keep saying nothing's going to surprise me. Nothing's going to surprise me, but something always surprises me. Yeah. And it was interesting, you know, his family coming from uh mississippi it's pretty close to our neck of the woods in arkansas um yeah um, and it's always an interesting story to see like people with a liberal mindset come out of that place well there's there's always still that tradition you know of the the scalawag 
um, in the South. You've, you've, you always had that person, um, you know, the, the village scalawag that was just like, they viewed, they viewed like, him as a contrarian, like, oh, you know, that's the one guy that voted for Lincoln or something. And, oh, <laughs> or, you know, the, there, would you say that, would you say that the Wisners uh, qualified as carpetbaggers or was that a little too late? Uh, I'm sure, I'm sure they were called that. Uh, I imagine they were called that. And the carpetbagger has a negative connotation because, um, they were viewed as being exploitative, but I don't know if that's a, like a, opportunists, right? Yeah. Just like, well, they, they Oh, the be. South is in shambles. I can travel down there from my home in the North and make some money yeah pick things up for pennies on the dollar and and surely there there was a lot of that um but there was also a lot of people coming down trying to just you know make money in good old capitalist fashion um which you know like the um, the uh, wisners you know they of course they exploited the land but that's not something that would really aggravate your you know good old capitalist (laughs) he came down and they they turned that woodland into something profitable and gave people jobs in the process and helped bring money into the region. You know, that's, that's the classic tale of uh, positive growth of America. You know, they weren't. Yeah. You know, they didn't come down and um, you know steal uh, the former plantation owner's land and oh goodness and you know or whatever else they would say yeah. they were doing to take advantage of people. Um, yeah. And it's an interesting region, like that Pine Barrens um, in uh, southeast Mississippi. A lot of those kind of Choctaw-heavy early on. And of course, the vast majority of the Choctaw were, um, were moved to Oklahoma. That's uh, one way of putting it. And um, <laughs> the, But that area didn't really develop that much. Yeah, well, I mean, I, yeah, I talked about it, the... The slave economy yeah. wasn't really set up there very, very deeply. However, that culture of racism um, existed. If you look up there, I think, oh, Matthew McConaughey was in a movie, The Free State of Jones, and that whole main character and the family, it, it's pretty interesting because I think he had, like, two wives. He had his, um, like, his Caucasian wife and his, um, his um, African-American wife and... You know, they're the, each the descendants, and, and you know he's he's not necessarily seen as this like superhero locally. It just well, it depends on who you talk to. For some people, he's a great hero who resisted Confederate oppression, and for other people, he was this um, polygamist um, misogynist. <laughs> right. Which I don't yeah. know sounds like two of my favorite things, but. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but uh, other people just wouldn't approve. <laughs> Another thing that um, that I think was interesting to come out of the Frank Wisner story is where we get some light is shed on the Soviet Army and you know their um, tactics. I guess you would say um, as far as how they treated. The people that they conquered, I guess is the right word. I don't know. Right. Well, but, you know, as their army marched west and, you know, but then 
I can't help but wonder how much of that was, um, you know, like you would just consider as like standard operating procedure for the Soviet army at the time and how much of it was, uh, you know, this anger toward the Germans for betraying them, you know. So I wonder how much of that was there, revenge. Uh, well, I read, uh, was I met a, um, a Polish fellow once, and he we were talking about you know Poland and part of it being under Austria and part of it being under Russia and the things people would do, the legal loopholes in the Austrian-controlled area. Because, you know, they had some discriminatory laws, but if you were clever enough, you could come up with tricks like, oh, you can't improve your house, so put wheels on your house, and then you can improve that. And the Austrians would just kind of, well, well, that's the letter of the law. But the Russians were like, no, 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 we're just going to burn it down. Uh, but at the end of the day... The Russian government has always been harshest on the Russian people. And, yeah, they were definitely harsh as they liberated Poland. And in their view and in their own propaganda, they were liberating Poland. Poland never declared war on the Soviet Union, even though the Soviet Union invaded them. And um, so the Soviets were like, we are liberating them from the Germans. Uh, But you go back to the... Russian Civil War, the Reds and Whites, and both of them committed so many atrocities. Um, just, you know, mass murder. Uh, I guess, it, I mean, you could, could call it genocide, but it wasn't intentionally trying to wipe out a particular genetic group necessarily, um, but it was wiping out large groups of people. And, um, you know, so you had the, the Red Terror, but there was also the White Terror, and I just, I don't right. know if the Russians moving in, what the things they did in Prussia or, you know, or even Poland and Romania and wherever else they, in Germany, uh, I don't know how much of it was targeted revenge or just that's kind of what that army did uh, yeah. in that situation. Well, and and they came from, you know, when people talk about, Stalin, uh, Stalin's army and how brutal they could be. Um, but I think that it's important to remember too, that that was their history and that the government that they overthrew to get in power was just as brutal, if not more brutal. So that was just part and parcel of, Oh yeah, the red terror um, and the white terror. You know, people say, "Oh, look yeah. at all the horrible things the Red Army did." And now I don't want to, you know, say, "But what about these guys?" You know, you right. You're not a, make, you got to watch equip, that yeah. line, but <laughs> yeah, and I don't say that to excuse what the Soviet Army did, but just to help understand, you know, where they came from, because it's the same thing with. Um, the spying situation, I think we've talked about this before, where, you know, the U.S. at the end of the at the end of World War Two, uh, were like, oh, no, we need to start spying on the Russians. And so they're just getting started. But uh, spying is in the Russian blood because <laughs> of how how the um, 
how the czar operated and how they kept spies to try to infiltrate, you know, the communist circles that were talking about overthrowing the czar. So spying is like a part of their heritage, (laughs) you know. Oh, yeah. Gulags and oppression, all that that good secret police, yeah. Uh, well, that's uh, yeah, so, you, so you get a lot where they're like, oh, the communists, when they took over, they created this horrible authoritarian dictatorship. And it's like, well, Russia had always been a horrible authoritarian dictatorship. Why would changing, right. why would changing the flag change that? Oh, China was always an authoritarian dictatorship. And I was like, why, why would changing the flag change that? And, you know, you would like, well, yeah. look. Sweden, they, they didn't go the authoritarian route with their socialist tendencies. They got the democratic socialist. You know, that, that side won out over there. <laughs> but it was like, yeah. oh, wherever we have socialism, it becomes authoritarian communism. And then you have secret police. It's like, uh, there's a lot more nuance to it than that. Right. Yeah. Most of that stuff did not come about because that's inherent in communism it came about because it was inherent in russian culture <laughs> what was it well, the 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 plant it does have its you know whatever the seed is but how well it grows and how sweet it is will depend on the nutrients in the soil right and stalin just happened to be more competent than czar nicholas so. <laughs> that's one way to put it well, you know, one thing that messes our Nicholas up, oddly enough, like, again, like the road to hell being paved with good intentions is they had prohibition. He wanted to, he banned alcohol. Like, and so, and that. Oh, bad move. Yeah, yeah. And it was like before World War One. So when World War One started, not only had they cut out a major source of income, because before that it, it was um, alcohol sales were controlled by the government and taxed heavily. And I can't remember right now. I'd have to look it up. But I think it was like, I can't remember right now, but I'd have to look it up. But I think it was like 30 or 40% of the budget. So they're going into a war (laughs) with like much less money. And wars are stressful and people can't drink legally. Um, But they could still make the alcohol for export. And so the railroad lines that should have been sending supplies to the front line were shipping alcohol out of the country. And so, I mean, this is kind of like the untold history of how Russia tried to quit alcohol and people, like, assassinated the czar. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty good. Yeah. Well, uh, so that's, that's the setup of Frank Wisner. He's going to be, he's going to come to be much more important um, as we progress through the story. Um, yeah, he was one of the driving factors. There was a point in time right after World War II, as we learned, where the powers that be in the United States didn't want to even have to think about Russia. <laughs> they just wanted to, like, like, let's keep cool so that this whole Germany situation uh, is okay. But we don't need any, we don't need to call, you know, 
we don't want to start anything with Russia. And Frank Wisner is there going, I'm telling you. <laughs> I'm telling you. Uh, so he's going to be one of the voices that we hear speaking up to ramp up the Cold War. And again, it's maybe one of the first of many things that Frank Wisner does that has very good intentions, but in the long run is very destructive. Kids, if there's any lesson you learn, be apathetic. Be apathetic. <laughs> Absolutely. Stop giving a shit. <laughs> All the world's problems are caused by people who give a shit. <laughs> Wait, did we just turn Republican here? <laughs> we just get super conservative. Anyway, we'll be back soon with uh, the next episode. Uh, it's going to be fun, I guess, if you want to call it that. All right. Until next time. All right, yeah. Thanks for listening. Be sure to hit up all the socials, uh, the Facebook, CIA Files, uh, Twitter, Instagram, at CIA Files Podcast. Website, of course, CIAfiles.net. Um, be sure to like us, rate us, and subscribe if you like what you hear. And we'll have more for you soon. Thanks for listening. <laughs>